Welcome to this WERU Main Current special, Immigration Law in These Challenging Times, a talk sponsored by the MDI Racial Equity Working Group at the Jessup Memorial Library in Bar Harbor on February 12th. I'm Ruth Evelyn, the director of the Jessup, and I'm delighted to welcome you all here this evening for this event. Um, this is a wonderful opportunity for partnership in our community, and we are very, very happy to be able to serve as a site um, to be able to host the programs. Uh, just a reminder that the Jessup is here to um, nourish minds, enhance uh, people's lives, and build community. And this is an excellent example of that. We serve to connect people to ideas, people to information, and people to people. So this is fully within our, um, within our mission, and we're delighted to uh, be able to serve this evening. So I'm now going to turn it over to Dave, who will do the rest of the introductions. So thank you all co for coming. All right, good evening, everyone. My name's Dave Feldman. I'm a member of the MDI Racial Equity Working Group and also a faculty member at College of the Atlantic. So before I introduce our two um, speakers and discussants tonight, um, Anna Welch and Felix Aginamana, I want to say a little bit about the MDI Racial Equity Working Group uh, and the speaker series. So the MDI Racial Equity Working Group uh, is a community-based organization of MDI residents, and our goal is to deepen our understanding of privilege and um, power and to foster equity and justice here on MDI and beyond. So we hold a winter speaker series, and we're, um, this is the launch of that speaker series today. The topic of today's talk is immigration, and so I think it's especially important, um, given that topic, to acknowledge that um, the land on which this library is built, the roads that took Felix and Anna from Portland here and back tonight, are all in the traditional homeland of the Wabanaki Confederacy. Uh, and so we should respect uh, and honor and recognize the indigenous people and their ancestors here in Maine, the Abenaki, Maliseet, Mi'kmaq, Passamaquoddy, and Penobscot nations, and all native peoples, um, current and past, um, who have lived in this land that we now call Maine. The format for this evening um, will be a discussion between Felix and Anna. I'll moderate with a few questions. And we'll turn to Q&A towards the end. OK, so let me introduce um, our speakers tonight. Um, immediately on my left is Anna Welch. Anna is the Samuel L. Cohen Refugee and Human Rights Clinical Professor at the University of Maine School of Law. And as part of her work there, she oversees the uh, Maine Law's Refugee and Human Rights Clinic. And she'll talk a little bit about that work today. She's a graduate of American University's Washington School of Law, was a Cosley Godward Cronish Fellow at Stanford Law School, and was named Attorney of the Year in 2008 by Maine ILAP. ILAP is an Immigrant Legal Assistant Project um, here in Maine. Uh, our other guest is Felix Higinamana. He's Asylum Outreach Attorney at ILAP. Felix was born in Rwanda and as a 12-year-old child survived the 1994 genocide. He emigrated to the US in 2011, worked as a linguist in the San Francisco Bay Area, and volunteered to do translation and interpretation uh, for other immigrants and migrants um, for, as parts of their asylum cases. That experience motivated him to seek his own law degree, and he chose to come here to Maine, and he graduated from Maine Law in 2018. So please join me in welcoming Anna Welch, Felix Aginamana. So, 
So before we dive in, and so um, we're able to learn a little bit more about you, um, it would be really helpful to hear a little bit um, how you got interested in this area of law, and um, also how you're positioned on this issue, what your roles are, what the roles are that you play now. All right, I hope everyone can hear me. Um, first off, just thank you so much for having us here tonight. It's an honor uh, to be here with Felix and, and with Dave. Actually, this is, I grew up partially in this area, so it's, it's nice to be back. Um, so again, my name is, is Anna. I have been practicing immigration law now since, I, if you include my law school clinical experience since 2003. I think I initially became interested in immigration law in undergrad in Boulder, Colorado. I was um, a Spanish and journalism major and I, I, got, I, I was writing articles on the Latino population in Boulder. And I then also started teaching English as a second language to Latino women who were living in, in Boulder, Colorado which I very much enjoyed that work. I certainly love teaching. Um, but I also got, um, became privy to the other struggles that they were facing, not only with language barriers, but also access to our legal system, access to housing, access to work. And I wanted to do more um, th than what I was doing. And so that turned me on to the idea of law school. I had no idea exactly what I wanted to do, just wanted to do something good. Um, and I went to American University, which is known for its international law program, human rights, and also their clinical programs. And so as soon as I could, as early as my 2L year, my second year in law school, I did a clinic uh, similar to the clinic I now run, where I handled an asylum case for a man from Niger. He had been. Um, he was very young, I think he was maybe 20 when, when we began working with him. He had been persecuted and tortured um, because of the work his father was doing as a human, as a human rights defender there. And um, we got him asylum after a year of incredible work, my partner and I, and it was the most rewarding thing I had ever done. And so I told my clinic professor back then in 2003 that I wanted to run a very similar program, if not the same program, in Portland, Maine. And he's like, sure, great, great, everyone says that. Um, so after a number of years, quite a circuitous path to getting back to my home state of Maine, I um, launched the program in 2012. So um, it's, we're now in our eighth year. Students are the attorneys uh, on these cases. So think of law school clinical programs as nonprofits operating within a law school, but the lawyers are student attorneys. So they're working under my bar license and I'm teaching them to be lawyers through the actual practice of law. So students handle a number of cases, asylum cases, um, both um, sort of at the affirmative level, which means um, hearings, that, interviews essentially with Department of Homeland Security officers, but also they appear in Boston Immigration Court, which is where I'm heading after, t after this talk, down to Boston, because we have a hearing in the morning. So the students will be the attorneys on, on that case. We also do a number of outreach um, policy work. So it's just a wonderful um, sort of marrying of my two passions, both teaching and, and practice. Thank you so much, Dave, for um, inviting me, and um, thank you to all of you for being here. Um, like you said, I was born in Rwanda, and um, to those of you who do not know the history of Rwanda, uh, historically Rwanda had uh, three ethnic groups, uh, Hutus, Tutsis, and Twa. And um, on the morning of April 7, 1994, um, my uncle was very nervous, and when I asked what was going on, he said, I'm afraid that Hutus are going to kill us. And being a very naive, optimistic child that I was, uh, I said there's no way that they could do that. Uh, but later that day, a big group of people came to the house. My uncle tried to run. Uh, they chased him, and he surrendered. And um, he came back. They brought him back. And um, I watched him getting killed, and I um, ran. 
and joined a big group of people. We went and um, did hide uh, at the church, and um, it's a long journey, which uh, lasted a few months, but I, I did survive. And then after the genocide, I um, stayed in Rwanda, went to school, and uh, I had a career. Uh, but for people like myself who have seen a lot of violence, who have seen, lived through things like the genocide, um, America um, has been like a beacon of um, hope and, and, and things like uh, equal treatment and, and fair opportunities for all. And so after some time, I found myself dreaming of a life in, in a distant land. I um, moved here in 2011. I was in California at the time. I was doing the work, volunteering with um, a legal aid agency helping uh, refugees, and I loved the work. Um, I had been to Portland uh, visiting with some uh, immigrants. I spent a few months in Portland, and I applied to the law school um, along with other law schools, but I, I decided to come here, and I took the clinic with uh, Professor Anna, which I really enjoyed, and then um, I decided to, to stay in Maine. Um, I felt like when I came here, the, the law school gave me a chance, <laughs> even though I did not have money. And uh, I felt like this, this state had invested so much in me, and was, it was only fitting that I can stay and, and give back. So that's how I end up doing the work that I'm doing. Thank you both. Um, so before we get into some of the the immigration topics that are in the news, I think it would be important to clarify a whole bunch of terms because um, I think they can get, conf get, get confusing. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering if one of you could talk a little bit to some of the, the differences between terms such as immigrant, migrant, asylum seeker, refugee, visa holder, uh, and so on, and help us sort of make sense of, of all of those terms. Okay, so as the immigration law professor in the room, I'm happy to <laughs> tackle some of these, I know, rather confusing terms. And it, this certainly touches on some critical issues. How we label someone and how they label themselves matters, certainly not only on a personal level, but there are legal consequences for that labeling. I think in our public discourse, there's a lot of confusion, and um, it's these, use, these terms are used interchangeably. Um, but these ter these terms can you know if you if misused can create public confusion and um, really confuse our our public discourse. So I'm happy to sort of walk you through each of these terms. So the term immigrant um, is interchangeable with green card holder, lawful permanent resident. These are people who are here permanently in the United States. They can work, uh, live freely indefinitely in the United States. Um, but I think one uh, misconception is that one thinks, okay, you're a green card holder, you're a lawful permanent resident, that means you're not deportable. When in fact, green card holders are, immigrants are deportable from the United States. You can lose your status if you abandon it by, le by living abroad for too long, if you commit certain crimes, et cetera. So uh, until you're a citizen, um, you're, you're, not, you're not really safe from deportation. Even as a citizen, if you got it through fraud, um, you could lose it. Um, Lots of discussion of refugees versus asylum seeker. Similar, the legal standard is, is, is nearly identical. You've got to show if either as a refugee or an asylum seeker that you um, have suffered past persecution or you have a fear of, uh, well-founded fear of future persecution for certain protected reasons. Um, but as an asylum seeker is here physically present in the United States, so you can only get asylum if you're physically in the US 
you can only get, get refugee status if you're outside of your home country, and, and for the most part, if you're um, outside of the United States. And, you're, and the process varies. So I did some work in Kenya um, doing re refugee resettlement in 2010. And there I was working with the UN and in, in, in developing applications for, for folks trying to get to the United States or to Canada or, or to Australia or New Zealand. Asylum seekers we work with now here in the United States trying to get them asylum status here. I think you'd asked internally displaced persons are people who are still in their home country, but they have fled their homes um, for whatever reason. The term migrant is probably the most confusing one. It's a general sort of umbrella term that's used by our media, but it's not defined under US law or under international law. I think it just comes up in our public discourse. And it's generic in that it's used to refer to anyone who's left their home country, maybe for work or to find a better life. Um, but it's 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 a confusing term because it, I think even refugees are referred to as migrants, which isn't an accurate description. Um, visa holders, I typically think those are used to describe people who are here on temporary visas, maybe as F1 students or as professional workers or H2A or H2B, the alphabet soup of visas um, here for uh, a temporary um, time and, and, and purpose. Um, the big one is undocumented. And I think this is where there's also a lot of confusion. Um, folks think about undocumented people as maybe those who have crossed our border, typically our southern border, illegally. Um, the reality is that the majority of our undocumented population uh, are people who have overstayed their visa. So they actually entered the United States through their, a valid visa, um, but have overstayed or their visa since the expiration of that status. Um, so about 60% of our undocumented population actually have overstayed. So this sort of debunks the myth that if we build a wall, we will not have an undocumented population. We actually, that's not true. Um, that being said, it's important to keep, to keep the numbers in mind, only about 1.3% of our, I think it's 50 million people who enter the US on valid visas each year overstay. So the majority are in compliance, but um, so that gets to the bottom of, of undocumented. People who are here without authorization uh, who entered either illegally or whose status has expired. Um, so other, other terms that we hear often um, that may be important to draw distinctions between so ICE and CBP, um, those two um, organizations, what is the difference between them? What are their different roles? What's important for us to know about that? ICE and uh, CBP, I think, um, let me try to put this into, into the context. I think the current immigration debate began around the year 2000 with the, um, the election of, with, of President Bush and the United States and uh, President Fox in Mexico. So both leaders um, had connections together. They wanted to address the problem with um, immigration. In fact, uh, I think President Fox was going to address a joint session of Congress on immigration uh, on September 12, and then the day before 9-11 happened. And after that, uh, the immigration uh, became embroiled with uh, national security. It became the lens through which we began to see uh, immigration. And so what was the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization um, Service, was changed. It, was, uh, it became the Department of Homeland Security, and then the Department of Homeland Security had three uh, main urgencies, um, one of them being ICE, CBP, 
and, um, and USCIS. And so ICE is the uh, policing uh, of immigration branch of the Department of Homeland Security. They, um, they police inside of the US. They also play an investigatory role within that branch. Um, when we go to immigration court, uh, they are the opposing counsel. They, they, they litigate those cases trying to get uh, deportation orders against those people. So that's the ICE. It's immigration um, and customs enforcement. Uh, CBP, uh, Customs and Border Protection, uh, they police the borders, uh, but, but also they claim that they have jurisdiction um, up to 100 miles inward, uh, which is why we see a lot of activity uh, of CBP here in Maine because of that 100 mile um, jurisdiction that they claim that they have. Did you want to add to that? So, um, other terms that we hear are undocumented that you mentioned, we often hear people in, um, referred to as illegal or illegals. And again, in the interest of sort of thinking carefully about the language that we use, I'm wondering if one of you could speak to undocumented or the question of illegal or illegality. Uh, the term illegal is a, it's a popular jargon, but it's not, it's not a technical term. It's not used anywhere in the um, U.S. immigration laws. Um, and so I think because of its uh, negative connotation, and of course the potential to dehumanize uh, this vulnerable people, um, I, I do prefer a more neutral term such as um, unauthorized or um, uh, undocumented um, rather than illegal. You're listening to a main current special on WERU-FM, Immigration Law in These Challenging Times, a talk sponsored by the MDI Racial Equity Working Group at the Jessup Memorial Library in Bar Harbor on February 12th. The panelists are Anna Welch, Sam L. Cohen, refugee and human rights clinical professor at the University of Maine School of Law, and Felix Hagenamana, asylum outreach attorney with the Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project. The moderator is Dave Feldman of the MDI Racial Equity Working Group and faculty member at College of the Atlantic. And, and warning, this is going off of, our, off, off of our script here. But in terms of illegal, so you mentioned asylum seeking. Um, is that a legal process? What, are, what, is, um, what is the legality of, a, of asylum? When, when somebody comes to the U.S. to seek asylum, is that a legal process they're engaging in, or is that an illegal process? I realize that's maybe the wrong way to frame that, but that, maybe we could talk about that for a little bit. Well, U.S. asylum laws are, are based on the um, 1951 uh, Geneva Convention, and this was after World War II and um, the genocide against the Jews in Nazi uh, Germany. And the purpose of these laws uh, is to prevent government, U.S. And, and other governments, from sending people back to a part of the world where they will be harmed because of a number of uh, reasons. We call them grounds, five reasons uh, that they may be harmed because of their race, because of their origin. And so um, coming here and, and seeking asylum is not illegal. Um, it, it's based on international law and, 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 and people should be protected, I guess. 
So maybe maybe one more question, again, sort of on language um, and framing about these sort of questions of immigration. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, how, how should we think about, how would you, how would you prefer we think about um, the, the question of immigration? Sometimes it's phrased, as, as you were starting to suggest, Felix, as a question of human rights, as obligation under international law and treaty. Um, we often hear immigration discussed as an economic issue. Immigrants are an economic boon to a community. Um, and we often then sometimes hear immigrant, immigration discussed with languages of invasion. And I think all of those, th th those are very different frames from which to think about this question. And I'd be grateful if you could, could speak to how, that sort of bigger question. How, what should we be thinking about? How should we talk about immigration? How should we think about it? So I think it's many of those things. Certainly for Maine, where we face huge worker shortages, not just Maine, but throughout the United States, but worker shortages, um, it's definitely an economic issue. I have friends and, and colleagues, others who own businesses. Um, recently, a friend who wanted to expand the business but couldn't because of a lack of workers. When I was in private practice, I represented some hospitality clients right here on this island who had to you know, open late or shut down early because they couldn't get the workers in. So it very much touches all of us as an economic issue. Um, even we're the, you know, we're the oldest state in the, in the country. We face uh, shortages of doctors and nurses. Many of the immigrants with whom we worked were professionals in their home country. Maybe they were doctors, judges, nurses. They want to work. Um, we need them just as much as, as they need us. And, and so here in Maine and, and elsewhere, um, I think it's absolutely an economic issue. It's a human rights issue. It's, it's the right thing to do, not only under international and our own domestic laws to protect, uh, to protect asylum seekers. We should not be refouling or returning people to countries where they would face harm. Um, so it's, it's the right thing to do. I also think it just enriches our culture. I teach immigration law, I run the clinic, and I know that our discourse just in the classroom alone is so much richer with a variety of voices, a variety of experiences. So I think, uh, I think it's all of those things. In terms of the invasion, um, our numbers are actually going down in terms of the number of people coming into the United States. Our undocumented population in 2005 was 12.2 million. Now we're down to 10.5 million. Um, so the number, despite what you're hearing, right, of the surge at the border, the numbers are actually decreasing. We are apprehending more people at our border, but that's only because our borders shut down. I work in Laredo, Texas. I've went twice this past year. There's no lawful way to come into the United States. Asylum seekers used to be able to present themselves at a port of entry and say, I need asylum. It's, I'm, I'm, in, I'm lawfully allowed to pursue this process under U.S. laws. ICE and CBP are turning them away. They're, they're forced to wait in Mexico. So the only way to get in, and you're literally fleeing for your life, is to cross, cross maybe the, the Rio Grande, some, find some illegal way to get in. But the, as soon as they get in, they're presenting themselves to the officers saying, I need asylum. So we count that as an apprehension. And in the past, that wouldn't have counted because they would have come in through a port of entry. So our apprehension numbers have been going up, but we've made it such that we've made it that way. And certainly the face of our immigrant is changing. The southern border, we are seeing an uh, influx of women and children coming across our border. It's because in the Northern Triangle, the homicide rate in El Salvador and in Honduras is higher than in any war-torn country. I mean, they are in the midst of a war. We've got gangs who literally control huge swaths of territory in those countries. I think 20,000 deaths um, 
between 2014 and 2017 in El Salvador, which is more than Libya, which is more than Somalia, which are war-torn countries. And so people are fleeing endemic violence and crime. So that face of the immigrant is changing, so that's why we're seeing that, and I think that that's alarming, um, but it's not an invasion or a threat. Again, the numbers are going down. I, I concur with everything that uh, Professor Anna said, uh, and I would like to add this. I think I think it's right to think about it as an economic issue, and immigrants have become um, an integral part of our of our labor uh, market. And I think that reasons why this this has become um, one. I think America is a much more educated society. Um, in the 20th century, less than 10% of people graduated high school. Today, 85% of Americans graduate high school. That is good for the country, but it has labor implications. Because if you are a high school graduate, your dream job is not to pick apples in the fields. And so, and this, these are jobs that need to be done. And, and this is why immigrants have become a, a big part of, of um, the, the market. Uh, they make 17% of the U.S. labor force, but 53% of the low-wage market is, 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 is stuffed with immigrants, um, a platform on which uh, Bernie Sanders uh, appeals a lot of people, because wages have been going down for those uh, sectors of our economy, and most Americans, given the wages, are not simply interested in, in those jobs. Um, but I also think that it's a, it's a human rights issue. And it's also a problem, an issue of our values. Um, because what kind of values are we telling these people when we say, we trust you to take care of our infants, we trust you to take care of the elderly, but we don't trust you with membership in our society. And I think there's one area um, that I think the contribution of, um, of immigrants is needed and often not appreciated, and that is in, um, in, in, in problems with our aging population, uh, because 10,000 baby boomers retire every month. Uh, by the year 2030, I think like half of the U.S. population is going to be of one third is going to be over the age of 55, and so if we need an economic viable society to support all these people who are retiring, we obviously need an infusion of of, of new people. And um, uh, I was reading the Atlantic the other day. Uh, the U.S. Social Security Administration has a, a strange file. They call it. Um, the, the suspension file, in which they take and credit uh, contributions that are made, but to which there is no valid social security to match it to. And by most analysts, uh, these are undocumented people who are working, um, getting wages, but they don't have a social security. And uh, right now, on the social security suspense file, there is $1.3 trillion, trillion with a T. And I think this is one of those areas that um, the contribution of immigrants and especially the, the unauthorized is, is least uh, appreciated. 
So maybe let's turn our attention now to some of the um, uh, issues we're hearing about with immigration. There's lots, and I'm wondering if you could, yeah, short little question. If you could speak some, perhaps maybe to the, the changes, the sort of national trends, the issues we're seeing nationally, but then also um, the, the um, situation with immigrants um, in Portland, and particularly the folks that were living at the Expo Center this summer. would love to hear about both of those. So maybe I'll tackle the national landscape a bit. So um, I won't sort of belabor what you probably are aware of, uh, the recent expansion of the travel ban. Um, so six additional countries that have been added to that list, so people who are excluded both, and it depends on which country you're from, but from accessing, again, the immigrant visas, those who want to come and join their spouse or join their parent on, on, that, on that green card are literally banned from coming if you're from those countries or coming in temporarily as a student or as a you know, professional worker. So that's been expanded to now uh, a total of 13 countries on that list. Um, one that you may not be as intimately familiar with, but it has been more recently in the news, is the public charge um, new ground of inadmissibility. In other words, if you're um, you know, I'm married to a foreign national, that foreign national wants to, I petition for them and I want to bring them in. If, if there's an indication that they might be a public charge, in other words, on any of our public benefits, it's now a ground of inadmissibility. They wouldn't be able to come in. So it's really punishing uh, those with, with fewer resources who might um, need access to, you know, um, vital health or food or, or housing support. Um, so that's going to impact thousands uh, of individuals and really continue to tear, to tear families apart. There are exceptions to this public charge rule, so asylum seekers are excluded, um, as are some other of our, of our humanitarian categories. But that's, that's been really, um, really big in, in the immigration advocate uh, world. Some of the lesser known things, um, as I mentioned, there, there's the Remain in Mexico policies called the MPP, Migration Migrant Protocol, or Migrant Protection Protocol. Um, it was first implemented in January of last year, so January of 2019, and the idea is if you're coming into the United States to seek asylum, we're telling you, you need to wait in Mexico. Um, about 60,000 individuals have been stuck in Mexico awaiting the processing of their asylum case. It's taking weeks, months, um, likely will be years for some individuals. Um, only one percent of those individuals are actually getting asylum, so the, it's essentially refouling, sort of in violation of our domestic and international laws, sending people back to very dangerous situations. So in Laredo, where we work, we no longer now have access to seeing these people firsthand, meeting with them and assessing their asylum claim. We're having to do it over the phone because it's simply too dangerous for us to go into Mexico and Nuevo Laredo because it's run by a cartel. There are stories we're hearing of, of people being murdered, being extorted, being kidnapped. These are children, these are women, these are families traveling together. Um, so this is, it's just a humanitarian crisis happening at our own border that we, that we created. Um, and um, mandatory detention of asylum seekers. So if you do make it across the border, uh, the, this administration has interpreted the law to say that you're subject to mandatory detention. Even if you can show that you're not a danger to society, that you're going to show up to your court proceedings, it used to be you could get bonded out. Now you're subject to mandatory detention. We do work in the detention centers, and that essentially means um, for many of them they're, they're likely going to get deported after wallowing away in detention for a number of months, if not years. So those are some critical changes that we're seeing on the national landscape. It's important to keep in mind that the administration 
administration cannot change laws, right? Only Congress can do that. But there's a number of different changes in terms of how we interpret those laws or the policies that are implemented that have very real impact on, on, on people. Um, in the summer, about um, 400 people from, uh, mainly from the Democratic Republic of Congo and um, Angola came to Portland. Uh, the city was overwhelmed, they opened the expo, but the community stepped up. Um, people really came together and uh, tried to address which, uh, this humanitarian crisis. Um, and I think it was a very successful uh, program. Uh, we had a lot of host families that took people in. Uh, a lot of community organizations came together trying to find uh, housing for these people. And um, now um, a lot of those families have uh, been able to find home. Kids are going to school. Uh, some of them, of course, learned how difficult it is to uh, obtain legal status here, and um, they went to Canada. But a lot of them stayed, um, and they're doing uh, mostly fine, uh, getting acclimated to, to Maine. And uh, the ones that I speak to are very, very uh, appreciative of the state and uh, the kind of support, outpouring support that people have given them. Can you say a little bit about why the Congolese and Angolans um, came to Portland when they did? In the news articles I read, it sounded like they just appeared like magic out of nowhere, and I'm pretty sure that's not the case. So why did, why did, they, why did they come now, and why did they come to Portland? Uh, Maine is very welcoming. <laughs> that's why they came. Uh, when, you do, when you survey refugees in refugee camps in Africa and Middle East, and ask them which, sta which uh, state in the United States would like to go to, Maine comes as number one. Uh, I don't know what that means uh, in terms of practicalities, but uh, the state had earned that reputation of being a welcoming place. Uh, there's also a community uh, of people from those countries, and uh, they hear stories of people who have been successful, successfully settled, uh, in, especially in the Portland area, and, and they want to go there where they can see their own people. And um, I guess there is also, uh, part of it is also the social services because Maine is one of the rare uh, states where they can give you like emergency aid, even if you are not uh, like uh, someone who has papers allowing you to stay here. Like if you are seeking asylum, Maine is one of the very few states that can um, help you with things like food and that kind of things. And I think it's one of the reasons why that people also come here. Thank you. Um, so maybe shifting back then to immigrant detention, which Anna, you mentioned briefly, um, that's also such, such a big issue that we've heard about. I wonder if you could maybe say a little bit more about that, um, why immigrants are being held, although you mentioned that briefly, and just the mechanics, where, um, and, and what the prospects are for folks who are currently in detention. And also, we've read a lot about family separation as well, and if you could speak to that, please. So, um, this is quite an uplifting conversation. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll try to bring in some happiness at the end. So, uh, we operate the world's largest immigrant detention sort of machinery. Um, 
and it's not a new thing that we've been detaining immigrants, but it, the numbers are increasingly more and more uh, alarming. So we're at a, sort of an all-time high of daily uh, detention. So right now we, I think it's a number from the fall, um, but detaining approximately 55,000 immigrants in our immigrant detention centers around the country. Three quarters of those individuals are held in private facilities. So these are facilities that the government has said we are no longer going to, to house criminal detainees in because uh, they're alarmed by some of the conditions, but it's fine to hold immigrants there. Keep in mind this is administrative detention. So these are individuals who are not serving time for crimes they've committed. They are being detained as a way to effectuate their removal from the United States. So it's not a form of punishment, yet they are held in jails. They're held in private facilities for all intents and purposes. Our jails, bar wire, cells, jumpsuits, handcuffs, all of the above. Um, again, administrative detainees. Uh, these private facilities are owned by three, uh, primarily by three major multinational companies. It's a $4 billion industry a year. Um, so it's a huge moneymaker. There are about 200 immigrant detention centers around the country. The nearest one to us here in Maine, Cumberland County Jail does hold immigrants, um, but just for uh, shorter periods of time. The nearest one to Maine is Stratford, New Hampshire. So we've recently started, as my, my, my program has started, a, a project out of Stratford, New Hampshire, where there's about, I think the latest is about 130 immigrants being held there at any given time. Primarily New Hampshire, a lot of Mainers are, are being held there. You're listening to WERU-FM. This is a main Current special on immigration law in these challenging times, a talk that was sponsored by the MDI Racial Equity Working Group at the Jessup Memorial Library in Bar Harbor on February 12th. The panelists are Anna Welch, Sam L. Cohen, Refugee and Human Rights Clinical Professor at the University of Maine School of Law, and Felix Higanamana, Asylum Outreach Attorney with the Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project. The moderator is Dave Feldman of the MDI Racial Equity Working Group and faculty member at College of the Atlantic. Yes, so Trump's zero tolerance policy where we're seeing a number of children being separated from their families. So Obama detained families. We were actually, my student team was the first team out of Maine of lawyers to go to Artesia, New Mexico, which is a family center that Obama started where um, during the quote unquote surge, I think it was 2014, um, where a number of families were being held in Artesia. What he wasn't doing is separating those kids from their parents, uh, certainly at the, at the same level. Um, but family detention is, is not a good thing either. But this family separation sort of took it to a whole new level. Um, under that program, which did end in 2000, June of 2018, but about 5,500 kids were separated from their parents. Unfortunately, despite the injunction that was issue, issued by the uh, federal court uh, or a judge, um, we've still seen about 1,500 kids being separated from their parents since, um, since June of 2018. So it's still happening. But the majority of kids have been reunited uh, with family members, but thousands re or you know, hundreds, if not thousands, remain, remain separated. Um, so I think that's little known. I think folks thought, well, we took to the streets, the, pro the program has ended. But unfortunately, unfortunately that's not true. Um, I think you asked... Why are they being held? I think that's an interesting <laughs> question. I think um, some argue the detention serves as a deterrent, right? So if we deter, if we detain them, then that, that will deter others from coming in. What we're seeing though is that, as I mentioned earlier, when you're fleeing for your life, you'd rather be in detention, right? And so that's actually what 
when down in Laredo, when we're talking with people who are stuck in, in Nuevo Laredo, they'd much rather be in detention. And that's where we used to work. And I'm like, it's incredible that I miss detention. Um, so it's not serving as a deterrent at all. They're still coming. They're still fleeing for their lives. Um, others argue that it, you know, it's a huge moneymaker. $4 billion a year. There's a lot of lobbying trying to get these detention centers in your hometown. It produces jobs. There's, um, you know, there's a lot of money around it. Um, so I'm not sure there's a will to um, get rid of it, even if it doesn't serve as a deterrent for, for folks to come. I'm wondering if you could maybe both speak to what's driving, what's, you know, what do you think is driving some of these sudden changes? And Anna, you mentioned uh, you know, an expanded immigration uh, you know, ban, or travel, or the immigration ban to six countries. But those countries, my impression is, are not chosen at random. Uh, and so, uh, and the initial countries were perhaps also not chosen at random. And I'm wondering if you could speak some to the broader forces that you see at work um, behind, these, behind these changes that you've both been talking about. Well, I think, do you wanna, do you wanna tackle it as well? Okay, I'll, I'll go and then you, okay. So I think um, this administration has done a remarkable job um, sort of taking a section of our society and creating the us versus them um, that's really breeding hate and violence. And I, I'm sure you've all heard the name Stephen Miller, Miller um, so senior Trump advisor to this administration is at the heart of much of that. Um, so the po Southern Poverty Law Center recently um, wrote a report, I think in November of this past year, uh, uncovering emails that he had sent to Breitbart News where he was intentionally trying to link, uh, erroneously link immigrants or immigration to high levels of violent crimes. Um, and when the reality is actually immigrants are less likely to commit crimes than their U.S. born uh, counterparts. Um, so Miller has taken a very hardline approach to immigration and he's behind much of these harsh policies. I mean, I think he's known to be incredibly racist, uh, white supremacist. So I think that there is, there are certainly elements of that behind family separation, this idea of detention as a deterrent, reduction, significant reductions in our refugee numbers, um, the new policy that renders those who are poor or likely to become a public charge from getting green cards. So I think that is certainly at play. And I think also the, the changing demographics of this country, um, it's something, um, when you look at the history of immigration in this country, we had something that we called um, the national origin quota system. And when you look at like 10 countries where people were coming from uh, in the 60s, and then you look at the 10 countries where people are coming from now, the only country on those two lists is Mexico. And so that changing demographic means something to some segments of, of the population. And then when you have uh, leaders who take uh, people's justified fears and then they offend them with lies to make points, uh, it becomes a problem. And that's why you see not just here in the US but also in Europe, the rise of the, the radical right. And um, I think it's also a problem because, especially like um, after the genocide, it, 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 the world would not correlate anything that would get people anywhere near Auschwitz. But I think as we get further and further, people become, um, we, we forget the history and then um, you can have populist people come in and, and, and do things like we see happening now. 
Um, so I think we'll return to maybe some of these bigger things as we wrap up, but maybe shifting gears um, a little bit um, to sort of think of some of the some of the the roles that we might have to play and how we're situated here. Um, so one question first, and again I'm going out of order. Um, so we have a lot of immigrants here in our community. Um, I'm proud that one in five COA students are from outside the U.S. Um, we have many workers, many residents um, who are immigrants, and of course many tourists as well. And so I think a, a question I've heard from a lot of different folks is, if you're an immigrant, what in in particularly here here in Maine in this community, what what rights do you have? Do you have the right of freedom of speech and assembly that citizens enjoy? Is it possible to speak at a protest, for instance, or um, write a write a frustrated letter to our senator? Is that something that would be a risky move for for an immigrant here? Uh, it shouldn't. Um, people with visas, like student visas, legal permanent residents, they have the the First Amendment rights, and um, ICE and immigration officials are not allowed to retaliate uh, against them if they exercise their uh, First Amendment right. Uh, of course, we've heard that. Um, I sometimes will target uh, people who are immigrant advocates, but that's uh, that's not the norm. It's it's out of uh, it's out of the norm. But I, I think they have uh, they they have those rights. Um, so a related question. Um, I know at um, the Concord Trailways buses, um, for instance, CBP has on many occasions. I think recently. Uh, just come on board and ask everybody for their papers and documentation. Um, I know that's something that some people in my community at College of the Atlantic have experienced and just not known what to do. And I'm wondering if you could help us think through how one might respond if one witnesses or is a part of that type of situation and how those responses might be different depending upon the positionality of, of, of who is watching that. So first off, we should be encouraging Concord Trailways to not allow CBP or ICE to board their buses. That is their choice. They have allowed them to board. Um, if uh, ICE or CBP officer boards the bus and you are a victim of, I guess, that enforcement, um, you do have rights. Um, you have the right to be silent and not answer their questions and just say, I'm not going to answer your questions. You can't lie if you do start answering, but you have the right to be silent. You have the right to ask them, do you have a... Can I, can I leave? And I would ask that often. Can I leave? Can I leave? Um, you shouldn't run, <laughs> um, but I think you should absolutely ask permission to leave. They don't have a right to search your person. They don't have a right to search your property or your home or your car without a warrant. And what ICE is doing or CBP is they're showing a warrant signed by their supervisor, but it requires a warrant signed by a judge. So look at that and make sure, and they'll say warrant on it, but it's not a sufficient warrant for purposes of our Fourth Amendment. Um, and so you should say, where's my, where's, where's your warrant? Um, and if they don't have one, then you have no, that, that you have a right to not to not let them search. ICE and CBP are looking for, because they know that there is this requirement, they're looking for permission. And so there was a recent report just last, I think it was actually earlier this week by the ACLU um, Immigrant Defense Project that said that hundreds of people have been victims of ICE ruses. They are knocking on people's doors and saying, can I speak to you about the Bible? Or I have a package for you. Or um, I found this lost ID card. 
trying to get in to people's homes. And, um, and so there's this expose exposing that, but it's officially ICE-sanctioned ICE policy to use ruses to get permission. In terms of sort of how are we all positioned, so I, I don't know your, your immigration status. I am not afraid of deportation from the United States, so I have that privilege. So I know what my rights are, and I also know what other people's rights are. So if I see that happening on, on a bus or in front of me, I think it's our obligation, the privilege, to stand up for those who are less privileged and say, where is your warrant? This is not okay. You should not be doing this. This is not fair. This is not right. So stand up and say no, because I think it's much, much harder for me to tell somebody who's undocumented or you know, who, who is afraid of deportation to stand up and, and voice those rights. And so I think it's our obligation as citizens to, to, defend, to, the, to defend those who, who can't. So I just want to make sure I heard you right. Yeah. <laughs> so you said that it is official ICE policy to lie to people to, to, so to gain access to their homes? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I did. <laughs> okay. I wasn't expecting to be shocked today. I was expecting to be sad um, and angry, but you surprised me as, as well. How, um, if you forgive the naive question, how is that legal? to lie. So I think I, this expose just came out. I imagine the next step will be a lawsuit. So I'll be curious how that goes. Um, but I think what we're seeing, I mean, in Stratford just last week, I was there with students and a woman who's a green card holder was telling me that ICE was trying to get her to sign a, her own deportation order. And she could read enough English to know I'm not signing that. Right. So they're doing it all the time and it's behind closed doors and there's not a lot of transparency. Um, all right, I'm being handed questions. So let me ask um, one um, that I think, Felix, you maybe spoke to, um, but I think it could, could be a, a quick one. Um, so um, somebody's writing, I recently read that undocumented immigrants pay billions of taxes every year to the U.S. government. How is this possible? And, and, it, and is that correct? It is, it is correct, yes. It is correct. I mean, if you look, they do if they work, I mean, they, they are 53% of, of the low-wages workers, and they pay taxes. They do pay taxes, and um, they will never reap the benefits of those taxes because they will never get Social Security or, and all that, but they, they do pay taxes. Um, all right, so here's... A, <laughs> Uh, here's a slightly heavier question, um, I assume addressed um, to Felix. So wondering if you could speak to and, and maybe compare the, the demonization and dehumanization that you, that you reference towards classes of people in our communities, particularly um, immigrants, Hispanics, Latino, Latinas, um, today with the demonization of Tutsis and others in Rwanda um, leading up to 1994. It concerned me particularly <laughs> as a genocide survivor uh, because one of the ways that you get people to accept this kind of uh, demeaning people is once it becomes mainstream, uh, then it becomes easier for people to go and hurt their neighbors, even if it's something that they would not otherwise do. Um, like in Rwanda in the beginning, uh, Tutsis were called... Um, cockroaches and race of vipers and when you keep calling people like that uh, people 
normalize that kind of behavior. They think these are dangerous people. And that's something that concerns me when, uh, when we talk about uh, immigrants because we talk about them as criminals, rapists, uh, and what you don't hear about is that in the United States, one-fourth of our medical doctors are immigrants. Um, let, me, let me get my notes here so I don't... So, so one-fourth of medical doctors in the U.S. are immigrants. One-third of computer engineers are immigrants. 53% of PhDs uh, in math, engineering, and computer sciences are immigrants. 51% of startups in Silicon Valley are started by immigrants. And 40% uh, of Fortune 500 companies are either were started by an immigrant or a child of an immigrant. And that's not what you hear about. And so when all you hear about is, is negativity, then um, you associate them with dangerousness, and especially if it's like sexual crimes and that kind of things, and it becomes easy to consider them as, as, as a subhuman, as, as lesser than in our society. Um, what is the legality of adoption of separated refugee children by American citizens? So I think that's where it was challenged and it was actually enjoined because it's an illegal practice, especially when it's said to used as a deterrent, right, for, for folks coming into the United States under our U.S. asylum laws, which again have adopted, are based on international law. It is, it's illegal for us to be deterring people from applying for asylum. So I think that's at its core when the stated purpose is, is to deter. So then I guess... So you've said, I think, if I'm hearing you right a couple times, that illegal thing, our, our government is doing illegal things, and you've also told us that they are continuing to do illegal things. Um, and so there are a number of questions spread out here, a lot of which boil down to international law or even our own laws, how can they, how can they, be, in, they, how can they be enforced? If we're not owing, living up to our expectations or our obligations under international law, is there any higher court, international court, to which that can be appealed? Well, so I think, you know, I think that's where immigration advocates, attorneys are coming in and they're suing and they're bringing this to the attention of the judges. I mean, there was a great Seventh Circuit case just recently where the court was like, what are you doing, Department of Homeland Security? We told you you couldn't do this and yet you're still doing this and at this point we're going to have to hold you in contempt, right? And so, you know, how are they getting away with this? I think it beats all of us, right? Like this is outside of, of our, um, you know, our justice system. It's outside of sort of rule of law things. Um, and so I think everything's being tested right now. Um, the rule of law, I think, is still there. Um, but I think a lot of things are being tested, and that's why we need more lawyers, we need more advocates, we need more journalists to bring this to the attention of folks. Um, because, yeah, a lot of things are happening that are illegal behind closed doors. And that's all we have time for today. You've been listening to a main current special here on WERU, Immigration Law in These Challenging Times, a talk sponsored by the MDI Racial Equity Working Group, recorded at the Jessup Memorial Library in Bar Harbor on February 12th. 
The panelists were Anna Welch, Sam L. Cohen, refugee and human rights clinical professor at the University of Maine School of Law, and Felix Higinamana, asylum outreach attorney with the Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project. The moderator was Dave Feldman of the MDI Racial Equity Working Group and faculty member at the College of the Atlantic. It was recorded by Matt Murphy with production assistance from Zoe Sifnakis and was edited for length. I'm Amy Brown. There are two more upcoming events in the MDI Racial Equity Working Group's Winter Speaker Series. On March 18th, Myron Beasley, Associate Professor of American Studies at Bates College, will give a presentation on Dreamers, Dreams, and Tall Tales, Malaga and Maine's Unspoken History. Again, that's on March 18th. And on April 15th, Abdi Noor Iftin will speak about his memoir, Call Me American, which is based on his childhood in war-torn Mogadishu and his eventual escape. Again, that's on April 15th. Both events will be held at the Jessup Memorial Library in Bar Harbor at 7 p.m. Stay tuned now for Radio EcoShot coming up next here on Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, streaming online at WERU.org and now on the new WERU app.